Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, we're still in chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 986. 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to begin today by reading the entirety of the first chapter. First Thessalonians 1. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 10. This is God's word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. May God give us ears to hear his word. In 1999, a science fiction movie was released that's gone on to become something of a cultural phenomenon. It starred Keanu Reeves as the hero Neo. The movie The Matrix was built on a rather simple premise. What if all of life, all that we're experiencing, is simply a delusion? What if none of this is real, none of this is reality, and in actuality we're asleep and all of this is some sort of computer-generated hallucination? This movie, The Matrix, went on to make nearly $500 million, and it spawned three sequels, uh, and it's become part of sort of common American culture. Now, realize I am in no way recommending The Matrix movie. Personally, I think it is extraordinarily overrated and actually not very profound. But what the movie does well illustrate is the way in which our culture has fully embraced relativism. We fully embrace this idea that nothing can be known for certain, nothing is objectively true, nothing is certain and sure. Uh, Nobody can know anything about right and wrong, true or false, beautiful, ugly. All of this might be a big delusion, a dream. So how can you be dogmatic about anything? Now Christians obviously can and should reject this way of thinking completely. We believe that objectively there is a God who created this universe. We believe that this, uh, this God have, has objectively spoken to us in his word and that we can know this word, understand it, believe it. We believe that this God objectively sent his son to earth in real time and space who took on flesh, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve to die, and then was raised again victorious. And we believe that these facts are historically sure and certain and that we can build our lives on them. That being the case, that does not mean that Christians aren't impacted by our culture. 
that Christians are influenced by our culture. And I've seen a wide variety of ways whereby Bible-believing Christians have been confused and led astray and really hindered big time in their Christian growth and discipleship by our world's relativism. I mean, just think about it. If you're spending hours upon hours watching TV, watching movies, watching The Matrix and all of its sequels, and hardly any time at all in the Bible, should you be surprised if you start to wonder if Christianity just is a fairy tale? Now, the primary way I've seen this relativism hurt Christians and hinder Christian growth is in the area of assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation. Again, if you're breathing this relativistic air all the time, before long you'll start wondering, maybe I'm not born again. Maybe nobody's born again. Maybe all of this is a delusion. Interestingly, I've seen this break down somewhat along generational lines. And this, I'm speaking here out of my experience as a pastor. I've been a pastor around 20 years now. And what I've noticed is this. If you're, say, 60 years or older, you don't probably have a lot of deep struggles with assurance. Now, certainly there are exceptions, and, and your upbringing has a lot to do with this, and your theology has a lot to do with this. And all of us go through some dark seasons, But it's been my experience that those 60 and older seem to come to full assurance of salvation rather easily and quickly. I heard the gospel, I believed on Jesus, God changed my heart, that's that. But among those 60 and younger, I've noticed a rather different pattern. If you're, say, 60 and younger, and especially if you're, say, 40 and younger, it's probably not uncommon for you to struggle rather regularly and intensely with knowing whether or not you've been born again. Again, that's at least been my experience as a pastor. Uh, Younger people think, what if I was deluded? What if I really didn't mean it? What if my motives weren't pure? What if all of this was a hallucination? What if what I think is my testimony is just a dream? That kind of thinking is pervasive the younger you are, and the more you imbibe our culture, uh, the more you're probably thinking such thoughts. So what this means is that the longer I've been a pastor, the more people I'm counseling regarding assurance of salvation. And by all means, if this is something you're struggling with, uh, let's have a talk about it. Uh, Come to me. I'm, I'm delighted to discuss this with you. You don't need to be plagued by doubts all the time whether or not you've been born again. Without a doubt, this lack of assurance, it is not healthy and it is not biblical. The Bible is emphatic that Christians can and should know that they are saved. What's more, if you're constantly plagued about doubts about your own soul, you will not love God and you will not love your neighbor as you should. You won't serve others as you should or minister in your church as you should or experience joy in worship as you should. You won't be much of an evangelist if you're always in doubt about the fate of your own soul. 1 John 4.19 says this, We love because he first loved us, but if you're not so sure that God loves you, you're not going to love him back and you're not going to love your neighbor very well. So how can ordinary Christians come to full assurance of their salvation? How can Christians know with reasonable certainty that God has worked in our hearts, that we have been born again, that God's Spirit dwells in us, that we can be sure and certain of a hope of heaven? Well, with God's help, that's the question we're going to be answering in this morning's sermon. Well, it's with this that we come to our next sermon through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Just to remind you of the context of this book, we believe that the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy together wrote this book around 50 AD. This was written to a very young church. Like I mentioned last week, the old members had been Christians about two years. Now consider a church like that where the old timers had been Christians two years. That's sort of the church in Thessalonica. And yet, like we've seen, despite their youth, this was a remarkably godly church. Uh, In fact, I was thinking about this. This might be the most healthy church in the entire New Testament. 
You know, I don't want to make that a hill to die on, but with the only exception of some confusion about the timing of Jesus' return, uh, there's really no moral scar on their character, no doctrinal heresy infecting this congregation. They are, in many ways, a model to emulate. Now, last week, last week, we saw the way in which Paul and his companions, they begin this letter with some wonderful encouragement. Wonderful encouragement. Specifically, they encourage these young Christians because of their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Even though just two years earlier they were ignorant idolaters worshiping Zeus and Athena and Mercury and so forth, uh, they have been so transformed by the gospel that now they're an example to the other congregations. And Paul commends that. Well, in the passage we're going to consider today, Paul continues along these lines, commending them for evidences of God's grace that he sees in their lives. So let's turn now to our passage. And the first point I'd like you to consider with me is confidence of God's electing grace. That's what we have in verse 4. Confidence of God's electing grace. Now look at verse 4. Paul and his friends write, We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now you want to know what that verse literally says in the original? It literally reads this way. We know, brothers, loved by God, your election by him. Your, obviously, it means the same thing, but it's, the emphasis is maybe slightly different. We know, brothers, loved by God, your election by him. Now, I am not so naive as to not realize that the entire doctrine of election is enormously controversial. For hundreds of years, Christians have argued about this, debated this, gone back and forth, and come to very different conclusions. I remember vividly back in college, spending hours, countless hours, debating this with friends, debating this with uh, maybe people that weren't so much friends, and sometimes it would get heated. Because of that, many Christians want to say this. Let's just ignore this whole election thing. Let's just put it on the shelf. Let's not talk about it. Let's move on to other matters. Well, we can't do that, and we won't do that for at least three reasons. First, realize that every important doctrine in the Bible is sooner or later controversial. Did you know that? Every important doctrine in the Bible is sooner or later controversial. I mean, just pick any doctrine you want. The virgin birth, the trinity, the deity of Jesus, men's and women's roles, who should be baptized, the mission of the church, sexual ethics, the fate of the unevangelized, the nature of hell. We could keep going. But every single one of those doctrines is incredibly important, but also incredibly controversial with somebody. So if we say we're just going to avoid controversial doctrines, not talk about those, just focus on things that everybody agrees with, pretty soon we'll have nothing left to say. Or we'll just say these very nice, soft, unoffensive platitudes that bother nobody, but then don't have the power to change anybody's lives. Well, another reason why we just can't ignore what the Bible teaches about election is because the Bible says an awful lot about the doctrine of election. If you've read the New Testament, you'll know this. The Old Testament as well. The Bible says an awful lot about the doctrine of election. Christians are regularly called the elect of God or God's elect. Our assurance of salvation is often rooted in our election, as we see in this passage here. Christians are actually commanded to make their calling and election certain. And here's the thing. If we believe God inspired the entire Bible, and if we believe he inspired it for our good, for our growth, for our transformation, and if we desire to know the whole counsel of God, which I sure hope you do, then we must grapple with what the Bible teaches about the doctrine of election. But the final reason why we can't simply ignore this is because that for the first Christians, election was not a matter of debate, but for worship. Did you, did you know that? For the first Christians, Paul, the apostles, for them, election did not move them to become these sort of aggressive guard dogs. 
but to wonder, love, and praise that God would have such mercy on their souls. Listen to Ephesians 1.3 and consider how this doctrine of election moves Paul to worship. There he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. You see, the doctrine of election is not some sort of obscure, arcane, irrelevant topic for college debate teams to argue about back and forth. No, it's something designed to move you to awe, to wonder. And realize this, that if what the Bible teaches about election doesn't move you to wonder, doesn't move you to worship, you either don't yet understand it, or it hasn't yet sunk down into your heart where it should be. So this is why we must and why we will deal with what the Bible says about election. So what is it? What is this doctrine of election? Well, notice a couple things from verse 4 here. Again, Paul says, We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, the first thing we need to say about election is that whatever it is, it's something done by God. God is the one making the choice. I mean, how much clearer could Paul be? He says, he, and clearly in context, is talking about God. He has chosen you. Now, it's entirely true that if anybody is to be saved, they must choose God. We're all born dead in sin, alienated from God, estranged from God, headed for eternal judgment. Jesus says, come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He says, whosoever will may come and drink of the waters of life. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Certainly, if individuals are to be reconciled to God, they must make a choice, a decision to trust in Jesus. That is totally true, but that is not the biblical doctrine of election. Clearly, the biblical doctrine of election is not you choosing God, but God choosing you. You see? Another thing I want you to notice here, in the Bible's doctrine of election, it's connected to the love of God. Look again, verse 4. We know, brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you. They're almost synonymous. Now, this is not the only verse in the Bible that connects God's election and God's love. Listen to John 15, and realize this is Jesus talking. John 15, 12, Jesus says this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Did you notice there the connection between being chosen and being loved? Again, they're nearly synonymous. One more truth about election from verse 4. Notice the way in which the believer's election can be known in this life. The believer's election can be known in this life. Again, verse 4. We know, brothers, loved by God that he's chosen you. This election thing, and I realize again that I haven't even defined it yet, but it's not this total mystery completely hidden from us. It's not this thing that's beyond our ability to discern or discover. It's not this thing that I've got to wait till I die to go to heaven to find out if I'm an elect or not. No, it can be known. It can be known with reasonable certainty, and it can, can be known in this life. Now just think about what we've said so far from this verse alone about election. It's God's choice of the believer. It's an evidence of an expression of God's love for you. It's something that can be known in this life with reasonable certainty. I mean, don't those sound like wonderful blessings to enjoy? Wouldn't you want to know, wouldn't you want to have that confidence for yourself? 
So why in the world do Christians avoid this doctrine and treat it like it's some scary skeleton to keep in the closet? Well, what really is the biblical doctrinal of election? Let me answer for you several quick questions in kind of a rapid-fire manner, and perhaps as you put this together, it'll start making sense. Let me just go through this quickly. First, who's elected? All those and only those who believe on Jesus. By whom are they elected? By God the Father. When were they elected? Before the creation of the world. Unto what were they elected? I'm trying to make my grammar proper. To believe on Jesus and to enjoy all the benefits he died to purchase, including forgiveness of sins, the indwelling Holy Spirit, eternal life, the sure and certain hope of heaven, the resurrection body. Why were they elected? Not because of any good works that we have done, not even because of our foreseen faith, but only for the praise of God's glorious grace. Does this election mean that people don't need to believe on Jesus to be saved? Of course not. Without believing on Jesus, no one can be saved. Does this election contradict our free choice? Not at all. Instead, election properly understood affirms our free choice and enables our free choice. Does election mean that God does not love every man, woman, and child without exception? Not at all. God loves every individual without exception, is beseeching whosoever will may come to the Lord Jesus and be saved, and he promises sincerely that if they believe on the Lord Jesus, they will be permanently and instantly saved. Can any of the elect lose their election, lose their salvation, and be ultimately lost? No. All those God has elected will certainly come to saving faith. All those who come to saving faith will be transformed and grow, and then they will ultimately be glorified. And Jesus isn't going to lose any along the way. Maybe my favorite definition of the doctrine of election comes from the old New Hampshire Baptist Confession. Uh, this, incidentally, is the confession of faith our group of churches, the Garb, came together to defend back in 1932. But listen to what they say about election. I realize this is going to be a lot of information. You're not going to get it all, but maybe just try to catch what you can. But regarding election, New Hampshire Confession says this, We believe that election is the eternal purpose of God, according to which he graciously regenerates, sanctifies, and saves sinners. That being perfectly consistent with the free agency of man, it comprehends all the means in connection with the end. That it is a most glorious display of God's sovereign goodness, being infinitely free, wise, holy, and unchangeable. That it utterly excludes boasting and promotes humility, love, prayer, praise, trust in God, and active imitation of his free mercy. That it encourages the use of means in the highest degree. That it may be ascertained by its effects in all who truly believe the gospel that it is the foundation of Christian assurance, and that to ascertain it with regard to ourselves demands and deserves the utmost diligence. Now realize that if some of what I've said, and actually maybe a lot of what I've said about elections seemed kind of mysterious, like all, like some of these facets don't seem to make complete sense, welcome to the party. How all the facets of election fit together and work together really is a mystery beyond our ability to comprehend. We are talking about the ways and the plans of an eternal, omniscient, almighty, timeless God who never had a beginning, who never will have an end, who's known from all eternity past everything that's going to come to pass. We should expect him to do an awful lot that's a mystery to us. And keep that in mind. If your understanding of election is not mysterious, if it doesn't make your head hurt from time to time, you're not yet getting what the Bible teaches. And I've seen people do this both ways, some denying that the Bible teaches any such thing as election, even though it's plainly there many, many times. Others going so far as to maybe turn us into robots who make, don't make any choices and who aren't held accountable for their decisions. Both of those extremes are actually 
the same thing because they erase the mystery from the works of God. You think about it, if you can't swallow some mystery when it comes to doctrine, you will eventually become a heretic. Because most, again, most of the great Christian doctrines are mysterious. The mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of the Incarnation, the mystery of the virgin birth, we could keep going. We don't fully comprehend them, but we believe them because the Bible so clearly teaches them. So also, the doctrine of election, it's, it's beyond our ability to fully grasp. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways aren't our ways. Therefore, again, we should expect on a regular basis for God to blow our minds. Now, let me give you what I think is, in my opinion, the best example, or not example, illustration of election that I've come across. Uh, this is what I was taught back in college, and it makes a lot of sense because I think it captures what the Bible teaches, but at the same time, the mystery of the doctrine well. But imagine with me this doorway, okay? No walls, just a great big doorway. On this side of the doorway, there's a sign that says, whosoever will may come. Okay, and this doorway is open to all of humanity. Anybody, whosoever will may come. That's on this side of the doorway. Got me? Come over here. This side of the doorway, there's another sign that says, chosen from forth foundation of the world. So you, you, you see the door is open to everybody. Jesus is the door, inviting whosoever will may come to me. But as people come through the door, where you look in retrospect and you see they were chosen from before the foundation of the world. You get that? Now if right there you're like, wait a minute, how can that be? Well again, welcome to the God of the Bible, who does these great and mighty things that we cannot comprehend, but shame on us if we deny them because we cannot comprehend them. You know, really, that's not our role to only, you know, at the end of the day, what is our authority? The Bible or our ability to imagine something? Is our authority the Word of God or our logical comprehension abilities? You understand what I'm trying to say? You start denying what the Bible teaches on different subjects merely because you can't comprehend how it can be. Again, sooner or later, you're going to become a false teacher. Well, that's all I'm going to say here about the doctrine of election because primarily that's not the main point of the passage. But if you'd like to consider this topic more, I'd encourage you to go back and look at the studies we did in Ephesians a couple of years ago. Uh, toward the beginning of the pandemic, I worked our way through all of Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 1, I went into depth as to what I think the Bible teaches on this mystery of election. All of these talks, they're both in audio and video form on our sermon audio webpage. But if you'd like to check out that topic more, check out these Bible talks from Ephesians 1 from our sermon audio page. Now, we're almost done with this first point. But if what we've said is true about the doctrine of election, that means two things. Two things. First, if you are not a Christian, if your hope is not in Jesus right now, you stand condemned. You stand outside of Jesus. You're presently alienated from God. And if you die without putting your hope in Jesus, you will be eternally condemned. But realize that right now that door is open to you. Right now the invitation is open to you. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to me, believe on me, be forgiven of all of your sins, become a child of God. That's the invitation to you this morning. And again, God is promising that if you trust in Jesus today, you will be given eternal life right now. You can leave this building being certain that you have been born again. So I ask you, have you come to Jesus? Have you embraced him as your Lord and Savior? Are you looking to him as the only hope for your soul? The doctrine of election means you can, you should. In fact, you must come to Jesus today to be saved from the wrath to come. But the other thing the doctrine of election means, it means this. If you are a Christian, realize you are a Christian entirely by God's grace. Entirely by God's grace. It wasn't just God's grace that sent Jesus to 
take on flesh, to live, to die, to rise again, to save us. Obviously, that was God's grace, but it was also God's grace to give you eyes to see and a heart to believe on Jesus. That's just as much a gift of God as Jesus is a gift of God. If you believe on Jesus today, you've had an experience similar to what Peter experienced in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, 16, we read this. Simon Peter answered him, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jesus, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. If you believe in Jesus today, you've had an experience like what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Certainly, praise God for the work of Jesus on the cross in the empty tomb. Praise God for his work right now at the right hand of the throne of God. But in addition to that, praise God for giving us eyes to see and a heart to believe on Jesus. In our songs, in our prayers, in our personal testimonies, let's worship God, not only for Jesus' work, but for the Father's work of choosing us and the Spirit's work of illuminating us. For again, these are gifts of God's grace. Well, that's enough about election for now. Let's move on. From there, as you can see, Paul transitions to talking about evidences of God's electing grace. That's what verses 5 through 7 are. How did Paul, Silas, and Timothy, how did anybody know that they were chosen by God? Well, look at verse, let's start in verse 4 again. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now pause there. Paul mentions a few evidences here that persuade him that the Thessalonian Christians were chosen by God in eternity past. Let's notice these individually. First, he says the gospel was communicated to them. Look at verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, I totally understand that the main point Paul is making is not that the gospel came merely in word. But I don't want to pass over too quickly the fact that the gospel did come to them in word. Of course, it came in more than word, but it was not less than word. I know I've said this several times already this morning, but regardless of how you understand the doctrine of election, people must hear and understand and believe the gospel in order to be saved. And if hearing and understanding and believing the gospel does not take place, no one will be saved. This is Paul's argument over in Romans 10. Listen to Romans 10:14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You see, if anyone is to be saved, there must be a sending, a preaching, a hearing, and a believing. The gospel must be communicated. And since the gospel had been communicated to the Thessalonians, that was sort of step one in discovering that they had been elected by God. Now, in case you're wondering what this gospel is that was communicated to the Thessalonians, it's the same gospel, the identical gospel, that we preach here every single Sunday. This gospel tells us that we've all been made to know God. Every last person, without exception, made to know God, to have a relationship with him. And we're to find our life's fulfillment, joy, significance out of our relationship with God. And yet the problem is we've all sinned and separated ourselves from God. We either outright reject God with a sort of a strong fist, or we just passively ignore him and try to make ourselves our own gods. But either way, what we're saying is that the true creator cannot give us what we really need and that something created is better than God. 
And you think about it, under those circumstances, God would have been totally just to have condemned us. Created us, created us for his glory, created us to have a relationship with him, and we rejected him and told him to get lost. God would have been justified to say, you don't want me? Okay, you don't have to have me. But he didn't. He came after us. And he came after us in love. Instead of leaving us to judgment, God himself acted. He became incarnate in the person of Jesus. Jesus took on human flesh, just like yours and mine, yet without a sinful heart. He grew up, he lived the perfect life of obedience we should have lived. But then he died on the cross and he died bearing the judgment of God, the wrath of God in our place as our substitute. Three days later, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead to demonstrate that our hope is not in vain. And now the response again, turn from your sin, embrace the Lord Jesus, be saved. Turn from your sin, embrace the Lord Jesus, be forgiven of all the wrongs you've ever done or yet will do. That was the gospel that was communicated to the Thessalonians. That was the gospel that forgave them and changed their lives. And that's the gospel that we proclaim to you today. So before we go any further, I exhort you, believe on the Lord Jesus right now. Right now, if you've never turned to him, embrace him with saving faith. Depend on him to make you right with God. Embrace his loving leadership. Embrace him as God in the flesh who came and died and rose again to redeem us from our sins. That's the gospel that was proclaimed to the Thessalonians. So trust Jesus today. Trust him today. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on something that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, please talk to me after the service. I'll be under the overhang to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus as your only Lord and Savior today, and today be made right with your Creator. Now quickly, there are two applications of this, this evidence of their election that the gospel had been proclaimed to them. First, let us stand in awe of the wonderful privilege of simply hearing the gospel once. I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. But let us stand in awe of the wonderful privilege of simply hearing the gospel once. Now, has it ever crossed your mind that if you've heard the gospel just one time in your entire life, you are in a privileged category? I mean, there's a lot of talk today about privilege. I'm sure you're familiar with what I'm talking about. White privilege, male privilege, American privilege. Realize there is a privilege infinitely greater than all of those combined, the privilege to have heard the gospel. Throughout the entire history of the world, the vast majority of the people who have ever lived never heard the gospel once. We're talking about billions of people. Lived, died, never knew of a God who loved them and sent Jesus to die and rise again. Even today, 2022, around 40% of the world has zero access to the gospel. So we're talking about billions of people who have no idea there's a book called the Bible. No idea that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. They've not heard the gospel once. That's today. Now, how many times have you heard the gospel? I mean, just think about the entirety of your life. You know, I know some of us are new Christians and praise God, but a lot of us grew up in church. I've heard the gospel hundreds, thousands of times. You come here regularly, you hear the gospel hundreds of times. So why in the world are we so privileged? Why are we so blessed to have heard this message, this message that billions haven't even heard once? I mean, it almost doesn't seem fair. Realize that sense of privilege, it ought to move you to incredible worship and praise that God would love us so. And what's more, it ought to motivate you to take the gospel to those who have not yet heard it. And that brings me to my second application. Second, if one evidence of God's election is that people must first hear the gospel, let's be fully committed to global missions. Let us be fully committed to global missions. 
Let us pray and give and go and send until everybody, every last person on this planet has the opportunity to hear the gospel at least once, preferably more than once. Now, I realize that this is a little bit deep, but the Bible is emphatic that there are those chosen by God in every tongue, tribe, people, and nation all over the planet. This idea comes up several times, especially in the book of Revelation. Listen to Revelation 7, 9. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand. Now think through this. What that means is that of that 40% of the world that still has no access to the gospel, apparently there are among them individuals chosen by God to believe on Jesus. But here's the thing. Nobody can be saved without first hearing the gospel message. Therefore, for these elect to be saved, missionaries must be sent to them. To kind of paraphrase James 4.2, they believe not because we send not. And again, if that's starting to sound all mysterious, you're like, wait a minute, how can this be? Welcome to the party. So brothers and sisters, let us do everything that we can to support the work of global missions. Pray daily for our missionaries. Read a good missionary biography at least once a year. Evaluate your budget and consider giving more to support global missions. Very truly consider becoming a foreign missionary yourself. For again, without hearing the gospel, no one can be saved. And still today, a huge percentage of our world has no access to the gospel. Moving on quickly. Here's a second evidence that the Thessalonians were chosen by God. That's that the Holy Spirit accompanied the gospel when it was proclaimed to them. That's what we have in verse 5b. How could the Thessalonians know? How can we know if we're chosen by God? The Holy Spirit, in his power, accompanies gospel proclamation. Now look at it again, verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, as I understand this part of the verse, those three phrases there are all describing the same experience. They're not three different experiences, but they're synonyms for the same experience. I realize not everybody agrees with me here, and you might even have a study Bible in front of you that disagrees with me. But as I understand this, when it says he came in power, what that means is that the gospel came accompanied by the Holy Spirit, which means it came in full conviction. They're synonymous phrases. Part of why I believe this is because of what Paul says over in 1 Thessalonians 2. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul's further describing their reception of the gospel. And look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13, if you would. He says... And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. I think there he's simply explaining further what it means for the Holy Spirit to accompany gospel proclamation. And if you're a true Christian, you know this experience. You not only heard the gospel, you not only understood the gospel, and you not only comprehended it in some sort of academic way, you know, kind of like we understand that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. No, it's much more than that. When the Holy Spirit accompanies gospel proclamation, there's this overwhelming sense that this message is from God himself, that this gospel message is the true and only hope for my soul, that this gospel message, it finally fills that proverbial hole in my heart. This gospel message, it finally makes sense of our mixed-up world. This gospel message finally brings me a joy and a peace that I've never experienced anywhere else. You know what I'm describing? Maybe you had this experience in the middle of a sermon or during a 12-week Bible study through the Gospel of John. Maybe you had it while you were reading an evangelistic book 
while listening to Christian radio late at night or with a, in a conversation with your parents around the dinner table. It may have been after hearing the gospel for the very first time or after having heard the gospel for the thousandth time. It may have happened last week, it may have happened 30 seconds ago, or it may have happened when you were so young that you can't even remember life being any different. But however it happened, whenever it happened, upon considering the gospel, finally the lights came on. The penny dropped, the other shoe dropped, everything shifted into place, and all of a sudden Jesus became the joy and the rejoicing of your soul. If you've experienced what I'm describing even to a tiny degree, the gospel has come to you not only in word, but also in Holy Spirit power. Listen to how Peter describes this same experience in 1 Peter 1. In 1 Peter 1.8, I think this is Peter's writing in just different terms what it means for the Spirit to come in a, when the gospel is proclaimed. He says, though you do not see him, talking about Jesus, though you do not see him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I am so terrified for millions of Americans because I think the gospel has come to them in word only and not in power. I'm so afraid that for millions of Americans, they have confused a basic comprehension of the gospel and ability to articulate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus with saving faith. Honestly, I'm concerned about that for you. Saving faith is not merely the ability to answer correctly all the questions on some Bible quiz. The demons could do that far better than any of us ever could. No, saving faith is understanding those facts and rejoicing in them. Seeing them as the only hope for your soul, personally embracing those and banking your eternal destiny on them, that's what it means to embrace the gospel. So I've got to ask you, has the gospel come to you in word only? Please consider your soul. Has the gospel come to you in word only or also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction? Are you able to simply recite the gospel message and think that's saving faith? Or is it the treasure, the joy of your life? Frankly, I'm asking you, have you been born again? Now, I can see we're quickly running out of time, but let me go through what I got here quickly. What this means is two things. First, this Holy Spirit power that we're talking about, which accompanies gospel proclamation, it reminds us that conversion is a supernatural thing. Conversion is a supernatural thing. Embracing Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's not just a work of rhetorical persuasion or psychological manipulation or sort of measuring up the pros and the cons. No, embracing Jesus is a supernatural work of God. Just like God said, let there be light and there was light in this universe, God said, let there be light and there was light in your soul. And suddenly you saw Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Conversion is a supernatural thing. But the second thing that this means, this is exactly why we must and should pray for non-Christians to come to saving faith. This Holy Spirit power which accompanies gospel proclamation, that's exactly why we should pray desperately for non-Christians to come to faith. Has it ever crossed your mind why we pray so much for non-Christians to trust Jesus? I mean, I've grown up in church all my life, and I've been in a wide variety of churches, mostly Baptist, um, but several others, some of which I won't perhaps mention right now, but you can ask me at the door. In every last one of those good Christian, I'm talking like, you know, Protestant evangelical churches, every single one of them, we prayed for non-Christians to trust in Jesus. 
Now, why did we do that? If conversion is just this work of philosophical reasoning or psychological manipulation, what does prayer have to do with it? Well, the reason why all Christians pray for God to work in people's hearts is because deep down we understand that unless the Holy Spirit comes in power, our gospel will simply be foolishness to them. Like we read in 1 Corinthians 1, they'll think it's a foolish, nonsense message on par with leprechauns and unicorns. You tell me there's really this guy that died and rose again and you put your hope in him? That's how they'll continue to look at Jesus unless the Holy Spirit comes in power. But if the Holy Spirit comes in power, they will bank their souls on that. And that's why we pray and why we should pray for non-Christians to understand the gospel. So brothers and sisters, never give up praying for non-Christians. For your non-Christian children, your non-Christian family members, co-workers, relatives, neighbors, roommates, pray that as we communicate the gospel, it would be accompanied by Holy Spirit power. For then they will be persuaded that it comes from God. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to abridge pretty significantly my third evidence here. But let me make a couple of comments on it. We'll talk mostly about this next week. But one third evidence that Paul and his friends point to that they were chosen by God is that they became godly examples. Those who believe the gospel, they follow godly examples and then become godly examples. That's the point of 5C through 7. Let me just read this and make a couple of quick comments. Look at verse 5. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now again, we'll expand more on this next week, but very clearly one more reason why Paul is persuaded that the Thessalonians were chosen by God in eternity past is because they followed his godly example, but then in turn became godly examples to others, and specifically in their joy in suffering who they wanted to be like, who they wanted to emulate, what example they tried to set. That revealed volumes about what they believed in their hearts. And you think about it, that really is true, isn't it? Who you look to as a role model, who you want to grow up and be like, that says so much about your soul. If your greatest desire is to be like, say, Tom Brady, or Oprah Winfrey, or Donald Trump, that says so much about you, doesn't it? Similarly, the model you're setting for others, that speaks so much about your core beliefs. You realize this, don't you? But your kids, your spouse, your siblings, your coworkers, they are being influenced by you whether you like it or not. If they're more like Jesus because of your influence, again, that says a lot about your soul. But if they're more like the world because of your influence, again, that says a lot about your soul. So in light of this, I ask you, whose example are you following? I mean, we're all following somebody. We've all got this sort of person you know, we might be even embarrassed to say it, but we might be like, okay, what would so-and-so do in this situation? You know what I'm talking about? We all have that. Who is it that you're trying to emulate? Whose example are you following? Is it some celebrity, some politician, some person that used to be on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Or is it godly role models, uh, people we find in the Bible, people we find in the church? Similarly, think through the role model you are to others and how you're influencing to others. Again, we're all influencing somebody. Your family members, friends, co-workers, are they more like Jesus because of your influence or less like Jesus because of your influence? One third evidence that Paul points to that they were chosen by God is because the godly examples they sought to follow and the godly example they sought to be to others. But again, we'll talk more about that last week. So in conclusion, these then are the evidences that Paul points to to explain why he's so persuaded that the Thessalonians had been chosen by God. He's convinced that God had chosen them because the gospel had been communicated to them. 
He's convinced that God had chosen them because when the gospel came, it was accompanied by Holy Spirit power. And Paul is persuaded that God had chosen them because they then followed godly examples and became godly examples. And therefore, they could be completely convinced that God had chosen them to be his people from before the foundation of the world. Now, we're almost done, but there's one little part here that might be the most helpful for us discerning our own assurance that I've sort of left out, and I've basically left that out intentionally. Remember in the introduction I said that many true Christians struggle with assurance of salvation? Well, this is where it all comes together, really practically. Consider how in this particular passage, these evidences of grace, they were not discerned first and foremost by the Thessalonians, but by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Now think through this. These evidences of God's grace, they were not discerned first and foremost by the individual, but by others who observed them. And as Paul, Silas, and Timothy observed these and communicated to them, they were affirming to them what God had done. You following me? Now this is so huge. We live in an age when my estimation of myself is what's most important about me. We live in an age when my evaluation of myself is my identity, regardless of what anybody else is going to say. If I'm on American Idol and I think I'm the best singer in the world, and even if my singing sounds like uh, you know, a cat crawling across a tin roof, screeching, it, it, and the American Idol judges tell me so, forget them. My identity is what's real. Forget the world. That's the age in which we live. Realize that for most of the history of the world, the exact opposite was true. It didn't matter what your heart told you. If the American Idol judges told you you were a terrible singer, you were a terrible singer and should go find some other line of work. Again, this kind of thinking has infected the church. When it comes to assessing our souls, a lot of Christians are like, I'm a Christian, don't you care? I don't care what you think. If you don't see it, I don't care. If you don't think I'm born again, I don't care. I know what's going on in my life. If that's what you're thinking, my friend, be extremely careful. The Bible repeatedly talks about the danger of self-deception, self-delusion. And if you think you're born again, but nobody else sees it, if you think you're godly, but nobody else sees it, realize that you might well stand before Jesus and hear those terrifying words, depart from me, I never knew you. But realize that when others discern and affirm the evidences of God's grace in your life, that is so precious and helpful. When others are able to say to you, I know you're going through a rough time, I know that you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but I know you, and I know that God is at work in your life, and I know that God has chosen you because I've seen the fruit he's born in your life. That can help enormously as you go through a tough time. Incidentally, this is how baptism and church membership are supposed to function. Baptism and church membership, they're not these little perfunctory ceremonies that mean nothing. They're not like joining the G.I. Joe fan club. I remember when I was a kid, you could join these fan clubs. I don't know if they're still around, but uh, they didn't care who you were. Just send in your 1999 and they'll send you a little patch that says I'm in the G.I. Joe fan club. A lot of people look at church membership that way. That's not the case at all. Church membership, church baptism, or baptism, they're supposed to be signs indicating that others believe God's caused me to be born again. They're not saving at all. Don't misunderstand me. Baptism's not saving, church membership not saving at all. But what they're saying is that my church has looked at me and they think I'm born again. My pastor, my deacons, they've looked into my life and they think that I've been born again. And when I go through those dark times and I can't see it, I can look back and say, well, at least others can see it. When my heart condemns me, I know that God is greater than my heart and the people of God have affirmed that I've been born again. And when you look at baptism and church membership that way, can you imagine how helpful that would be when you're struggling with your assurance? 
That can give you incredible comfort when all around your soul gives way. So in conclusion, to wrap this all up, I ask you, do you know with confidence that you've been born again? Do you have reasonable assurance that you have been chosen by God and are beloved by God? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt, as certain as humans can be in this fallen sinful world, do you know that God has worked in your life and caused you to be born again? I pray you do. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word and for the privilege of studying it. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being a pastor. Lord, I'm so unworthy of this calling, so inadequate. I often find myself wondering what in the world am I doing up here, but you, Lord, have chosen me for this calling and given me this privilege. We praise you for that. Lord, please take what was said here today and use it to comfort us and to build our faith. Lord, if there's anything that I've said that's been amiss or inaccurate, cause us to forget that. And for those things that are true and scriptural and beautiful, Lord, cause us to embrace those with faith. Lord, for all those in this building, those in the hearing of my voice who do know you, please bring us to full, rich, joyful assurance of salvation. Um, and yet for those who are not yet truly born again, work in their hearts by your Holy Spirit. Cause your word to come in power, and please cause them to be born again. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.